It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, the home of cycling. Brought to you by Zwift where fun is fast. I'm Graham Wilgos. Brad, we're not on our usual setting in Bath today. No, we're, we're Chiswick. Uh, we're socially distanced in the, uh, in the Eurosport boardroom we are. in Chiswick. Um, how are you, first of all? Good, thank you. Yeah, yeah it's, um, the weeks are flying by now, isn't it? E3 game, over again. Next week, we've got the big one, isn't it? Tour of Flanders. Tour of Flanders. It's good to be back, as I say. It's good to have it back on, on its new normal scheduling, which mm. I think helps us all because we're so... Feels good. Feels Institutionalised, right. aren't we, over the years? And um, we've got a guest this week. Matt Stevens, former professional bike rider, it's teammate. Good. Indeed, brief, yeah. brief teammate. We had breakfast together, didn't we, as teammates? Sporting <laughs> a goatee resembling Damon Hill, the Formula, Formula One driver. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me back, chaps. Yeah. It's lovely to be here. But Matt, I, I am sporting on. a rather uh, a goatee that I like to describe as a cross between a, um, a teenage pirate and a magician. You've also brought with you, and I like to think that you reach for this in a sort of Pavlovian way, if you've got a microphone in your hand, your, your bag of Haribo. No, these are actual uh, residual snacks from Milan San Remo, because I bought four bag, four, three or four bags of Haribo from Milan San Remo. Now, the epic, because we were online. shift last week for you, yeah. Um, and we were chopsing so much, didn't eat any. So I ended up blowing with about 70k to go. Uh, and I'm, so I've used them for Gaint Wilgum instead this week. Well, I didn't, because I was chatting too much then, so we've eaten them just before the podcast. Again, well, again, today for you, as you say, um, call it for us on Eurosport. Brad, you've raced this one a few times. I have, yeah. Um, set, set the scene for us. Mix of cobbles, unpaved roads, the Hemingen. Um, yeah, um, I mean, kilometre zero, straight roads, can be crosswinds from the start. Um, those typical Belgian roads where you've got concrete slabs, very large concrete slabs with a rut in the middle. Um, each one, every one of them is uneven. They're sort of, they're like four metres by four metres, these kind of square um, concrete slabs. Um, and there's, you know, if the road is obviously two ways, is there's four. So one makes up one lane and then every four metres, you've got to rut before the next one and next one. Either side of that, you've got a strip of cobbles, kind of a foot wide, two foot wide, and then a bike path, which is also concrete slabs. And it's panned across the road. You've got fans each side of the road, or normally in, in normal circumstances you have, and um, they call it the uh, what they call it the Belgian Ravine. That sort of. Then there's a big ditch. I like to call it a big ditch. Yeah, which uh, we've seen a few of the women crashing into when we were watching the race. Um, yeah, it's it's very unique, is it? Belgium? There's no other country like it for roads like that. It's um, let, let's put it this way: it's got its own certain charm. Yeah, and I think you know, for many of us racing in our early days and amateur days, it's where you kind of learn how to ride your bike properly. I think that's the place where. A, I mean, people might go to Spain, they might go to Italy, they might go to France, but generally get yourself a grounding in, in, in Belgium and you learn a lot because the, the landscape, the topography, the, the roads, they're unique and that's why we get such brilliant bike racing. Don't yeah, we? and it heads out towards the coast, the Panna, um, Coxida, um, Ostenda, along the coast and then back inland and down to sort of Ypres and of course the sort of only real climb of the day, we've got the Redberg, the Zwarterberg, 
Um, and then obviously the camel, which they do laps of, and then and then it's normally a forty kilometer run. The descent of the camel used to be on cobbles, and it used to be treacherous. It was crashes every year. I'm not too sure. I mean, years ago they actually withdrew it from the race, didn't they? Because there was the, the crashes were horrendous, weren't they? Do you remember Jimmy Casper one year ago? Yeah, there? we mentioned it on air actually. Um, I think he was. I can't remember who he was riding for, but he Unibet. basically, uh, yeah, Unibet, and he basically crashed. Um, and face planted on the cobbles and it was a horrific crash and there was a camera actually at a fixed point at quite a low angle that caught it um, and, and I've raced as an amateur on that descent as well and it's probably one of the most scariest things I've done because they basically on the, la on the last lap of the race this year the last few years they got the steep side so it's like a wall and that's what you dropped off and it's pretty dodgy because you're carrying a lot of speed and when you're cornering on a cobbled descent um, the bike handles in a completely different way because you might actually, if you try and corner like you would in the road, you just drift outward. So you've got to start cornering a lot earlier. There's a, a lot of different kind of dynamics to descending on cobbles. So to be honest, it was a, a death trap. It was, it was lethal down there. So they've rerouted it for the last decade, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. So. And when you're, you're asked to do that, that sort of, um, make those sort of maneuvers again and again and again, I mean, it's 247 kilometers today. It's, it's, it's one of the most, uh, well, I'm going to say most attritional races outside the, the monuments on the calendar. Uh, I mean, that plays a part too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's brutal. As that descent particularly, you know, you've got bottles flying out of the cages and things which tended to cause a lot of the accidents. And, um, you know, they've made it for the, for, I think there was one too many, you could say that, that that descent is part of the race and part and parcel of, of racing in Belgium. But I think um, with the injuries that were sustained, I think it just became too much. But it's, it's an extremely tough, for a race that's flat with not too many hills on it, I would say it's, it's, not, as, it's not a war of attrition like the Tour of Flanders. Um, but it's a race that from, from, from kilometre zero, you've got to be on the ball. And um, it's, I think my best year, I think I may have been 21st or something. I made the front echelon at the start. I had a crash. I crashed straight over Matt Heyman at some point. Um, and Edvold Bosenhagen won it that year. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it, but it is normally, or it was back then, it used to be on a Wednesday and it was the big sort of warm up to, it was in between Flanders and Roubaix. And it was always the big warm up to Roubaix at the weekend. But now obviously it's, the calendar's changed a bit and it's, um, it's now on a, on a weekend. But it's, um, I think it, I felt like it took a bit away from the classic Gent weather game, what it was being on a Sunday. Um, I was I was like that sort of midweek Wednesday kind of hit out for Roubaix where you didn't see a lot of the stars because of that because a lot of them would take it easy but it was nice if you hadn't performed at Flanders on the weekend you had a chance to kind of you know top your distance up or likewise if you were a bit tired you could you could back off a bit on that race but yeah my first one was 2002 first year professional and Cipollini was world champion that year um, and that was the year he of course got dropped on the on the Kemmelberg and missed the front when Hincapie and I think Hincapie won it and he threw the bottle at the cameraman in between the races yeah this wasn't the race where you rode up to the front group and rode next to Cipollini I, well, and he I asked rode to the front of the peloton and I thought I had my teammates on my wheel um, we had Jackie Duran Guedon Monjan um, and they they let my wheel go and I hadn't looked around and seen it so I was just trying to go up to the right hand side of the road as Aqua Saponi were on the left with Cipollini and Lo and behold, I was on my own because they'd let the wheel go. So I just looked like a bit of an idiot. And Cipollini looked across resplendent in his white world champs kit, top to toe, um, and sort of looked at me. He thought I was French. I spoke to him about this since, actually, and he sort of went, che cazzo francese, <laughs> which is, you know, like, what, what the hell are you doing? You know, like, and um, yeah, that was kind of... Uh, he won it that year. He won it in 2002. Two, that, two, this would have been 2003 then, sorry. Yeah. Sure. Okay, yeah. while he was world champion, but not... Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry, 2003 then, yeah. No, no, sorry, it was 2000. It was 2002. 
it was um he wasn't world champion that year he went on it, to it was he won that he won that day um because 2003 i pulled out the uh the feed because i'd been up there in flanders on the sunday you know he definitely put me in my place that day um but i mean he was uh, like i said last week the story of the milan san remo when he was when he changed his kit 80k to go he was there's no one else that could do that now <laughs> no he, he was a proper i know it's did you ever race with him? i did um i raced quite a few races in italy uh, with him and when i crashed in the Giro, actually without going on about that the following day i was bandaged up and um he came alongside me just when the bunch was bowling along and he just asked me if i was okay so i nearly we i think we spoke in french yeah he's good because his, his english wasn't great then and so we spoke in french and he he gave me a bit of a hug and said hey you okay and he said i saw your crash and i nearly came off as well i just wanted to say you know well done for riding and hey good luck for the rest of the race and i was just some like kind of just low-ranking rider you know and he's one of my heroes and he can come across as very very brash but he didn't need to do that and that showed another side to him that people might not often talk about i always remember that it was kind of just a nice touch and uh, he just kind of gave me a nod and then rode off it was a really nice little moment um yeah yeah a bit like you were saying last week brad with uh, armstrong patting you on the back at San yeah Reno. yeah so, uh, like i said felt like a million dollars <laughs> well yeah you know like i think me and matt were in the same boat if you like that we kind of grew up fans of the sport and also part of a club system in the uk where you never imagined you know British riders very rarely went onto that stage. You know, a few did, obviously, but not nothing like today. Um, and so, you only ever really before social media and Eurosports coverage and that. These are the people you only ever saw on the telly or in Cycling Weekly and magazines. Um, so it, it was kind of you were slightly in awe of them, starstruck when you were when you were with them in the, suddenly in a race. And um, that must have been like that for you when you went to yeah, definitely. You, know, you, you went from riding Premier Calendars to to the Giro d'Italia. With, yeah, yeah. You know, those guys. Well, Pantani and yeah. you know, riding with the kind of, I mean, they real, really were icons. And I think Brad put that really eloquently, actually. There was a, it was a proper stardom about them. I mean, riders have still got that now, but there's a lot of different kind of ways to kind of interact with them these days. And um, although there's, there's still a lot of greats of the sport, back then they were almost like kind of superheroes. And then to suddenly find yourself in the same bunch, breathing the same air, riding the same races, suffering maybe a little bit more than they did. It was something pretty special. It was like um, the Pru yeah. Tour, when, when Ekimov and those guys used to come and ride the Pru Tour. Yeah. You know, it was all the Kellogg's Tour and, you know, it was quite something for them to come and race in your country and staying in travel-ins or Premier lot, premier travel-ins and stuff around the country and walking through reception and seeing, you know, um, Vladislav Yakimov walk towards you or George Hincapi or... George Hincapi in a Premier Inn. Yeah, this yeah. is this is it. Yeah, and going down to breakfast and talking to the waitresses and stuff, you know, with like asking for you know rice milk when there's like you know British whole milk there with your Kellogg's cornflakes and you know it's it's a very um, yeah it's a, it's a strange thing but we're so used to it now we're so used to it and and just bring that Cipollini story back around for us again. So you've spoken to him about it since going to the front of the peloton. And, yeah, and him saying to so. You, I had dinner with him a few years ago at Francesco Moses what, uh, Vineyard. Um, we were there, Daniel Oss, Moser, Fondriest, um, Cipollini was there because they're all up from that, you know, kind of, Cipollini was going skiing up in the Dolomites, so we were in um, in Trento. And um, it was uh, Cipollini, I was, I was saying, you won't remember, in French, I was saying, because Moser speaks French. Uh, um, I, he said, he didn't remember it, but I explained that story to him. And he said, um, yeah, he says, um, I just thought you were French, um, and I would still speak to the French like that. They didn't like the French riders, you know. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's quite funny, really. It's, uh, 
how times have changed, how international the peloton is now. Back then, like I said about the uh, the Giro and San Remo and Trent, uh, Tireno, when you were in the French team, they they were Italian races. Eighty percent of the field was made up of Italian riders, and you would get wild cards and come in as a French team. So at the Giro in two thousand and three, my first one, you know, we had um, Francis Dujour and I think Bonjour at that time, or Brèche La Boulangère, were the only two sort of French teams invited to that race, and the rest of the race was Italian. So you you know it's not like you have a whole mix of things. And Tirreno was the same. San Remo, they were all Italian riders, and it, and it was their race, and you were in their world, and you were a guest, and you had to do what they said, and you you didn't put you know foot out of place because um, they would come down on you like a ton of bricks. Yeah, the, I think the like the Grand Tours back in in that era, like the nineties and the early noughties, were quite parochial. You know, the Tour was the same, the, the Vuelta was the same. You wouldn't believe it, but there'd just be a few kind of guest international teams riding the Vuelta because the back then both Italy uh, and Spain and France had enough teams to pretty much fill their own Grand Tours with their own kind of first and second division teams. And they had their then. own patrons yeah. that would, would stop the race when we were going up a climb and said, we're not racing here, which were like Bramati, Lombardi, these guys, Shirea. And it, you know, they, they kind of commanded the race. And if you sort of, like nowadays, everyone feels they've got a chance attacked, you know, they would basically kind of ostracise you from the rest of the race. To bring it back to today, an Italian flavour to the, the breakaway. Sonic Brelli, Matteo Trentin... Um, Giacomo Nizzolo, uh, Michael Matthews, along with Nathan Van Hoydonk pulling for Wout Van Aert. Matt, this is how you call it for us on Eurosport. Who's going to open up the afterburners first? Van Hoydonk takes it into the right-hand side. It is. It's been opened up here. Good opening up here by uh, the rider from Grupama FDJ. And now going through the centre is Wout Van Aert. Wout Van Aert with an amazing turn of speed. Van Aert straight as an arrow down the centre. Van Aert looks as if he's going to take the win. Wout Van Aert takes the win for Jumbo Visma. A perfectly executed sprint. Wout Van Aert taking the win today. Another spectacular show from him. I mean, he's had a remarkably consistent season. Yeah. He's shown it. A few ups and downs, actually. A few ups and downs. I mean, it was only the other week we were talking about, you know, him basically chasing Van der Poel, wasn't yeah. it? And, um, and now he's, he's sort of 1-0 to Van Aert, if you like, in the classics, isn't it? Well, and we saw him dropped in the week as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. At, at the three days Which the shows good character, really, doesn't it? I mean, you know, to be dropped, to still have the confidence. But, you know, he missed out last year, didn't he? Um, again, where again. But it's good for him to come back this year, show that last year, you know, with the, with the altered, you know, the adjusted calendar last year, that he's very much... A rider of the ages now and, and he's got his first big sort of I know he won San Remo and that but up there in Belgium you know of course second in Flanders last year and um, you know first one on the board for him of the big three we spoke about last week mm. so Nizzolo second Matteo Trentin in third Matt you were you were calling it for us today what, what were your big takeaways from the race the big takeaways were dropping into comms and seeing a 25-man group with only one De Koenig Quickstep rider in it that's my big takeaway from the, the early stages it's like I was trying to pick the bones out of what happened there. Um, Citron, AG2R Citron had missed it as well. Alpacin Phoenix had missed it. So the three big teams that had missed it. But good old Sam Bennett was 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 the lone rider in, in blue, which is, I mean, when you look at the classics over the last few years, I mean, Deconic Quicks, I suppose we know, have won a massive amount. But even when they don't necessarily win, they've Do got somebody in the top three. Efforts, yeah, I, 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 I don't know what happened. I mean, we, me and Adam Blythe discussed it on air, trying to think about how the hell could the Koenig Quickstep miss um, such a big split? I mean, normally um, they'd probably got at least two, maybe three, four, five riders in a move of that size. So it was quite unusual. So, but so Sam Bennett obviously didn't have to ride and, and Ballerini, Stebar um, tried to get across on a couple of occasions. 
but they didn't make it. And ultimately, well, that leads us to the bit about Sam. He was sick, wasn't he? Because he, he held on for grim death over the, the last ascent of the Kimmelberg and then was sick a couple of Ks later. We don't know why. We haven't got the kind of debrief there, um, which is a big, big shame. Because, uh, But again, that aside... I think it's just showing us a different dimension to, to Sam Bennett. I mean, um, the spirit of Sean Kelly is, is alive, isn't it? And Caracon in embodied in, in, uh, in Sam Bennett. Great to see him at the front end of such a tough race. I love the way he rides himself to a standstill, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, he was just he, rolling. Yeah. Um, he just he'll, he'll ride to the end. There's no, there's no airs and graces about him. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, we saw today, you know, so 33 kilometres to go it was, and we saw him, we saw him vomit on the bike. Um, and then he he hung on for a further. Well, he hung on until fourteen kilometres to go when he was eventually dropped. I mean, and that that shows some real steel. Yeah, he well, he yeah, um, you know, for a green jersey winner the tour, he's sort of fastest man in the world at the moment. Fair to say, you know, he give it his all. You, you can't say yeah. And you know, talking about Cipollini all those years ago, you know, Cipollini would never do that, would he? It was no, you know, he, he wouldn't see Cipollini being sick. He would give up before then because it was more about aesthetically how he looked, you know. Mm. And but Sam, you know, someone who's in a similar position to him now. Um, He's not self-conscious in terms of you know, want, appearing to you know, want his ego to be um, intact all the time, and it's um, you can't really say much more than that when the guy rides himself to, the, to, to a standstill and being sick. Is there's nothing much more you can do, is there? Yeah, I mean, he looked absolutely cooked yeah. coming in those final ten kilometres, particularly. But uh, it's I, good I mean, to see Van Oindonk up there. Yeah, you know, of course, his dad won Flanders, didn't he, twice? Yeah, um, uh, Eddie. Eddie Bosberg is his nickname, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, the, the, arguably the inventor of the over-the-knee warmer as well. Back in 1987 when he won Flanders, he cut off a pair of leg warmers because back then in the 80s, you either had leg warmers or shorts, nothing in between. So Edward Van Houdon was a very tall rider. Um, had a kind of specially commissioned Colnago bike yeah. with a big top, top yeah, massive drop, drop top tube top, on it. Yeah, They dropped the top tube. He was, what, what is it? He's but he's, you know the first six, rider six? was to have that? Who was that? It was Froiler. Oh, right. It's called the Froiler, isn't it? The Froiler Extensions. Oh, right. There we go. The uh, the uh, mustachioed mm. Froiler. That was, sorry, I've just lost my thread because I talked about over gonna, the knee warmers. So I was, was going to say, you've got, you've got a, I would assume the conversation there between Nathan Van Hooydonk and, and, and yeah. Wout Van Aert is that this guy's the best sprinter in the world at the moment. There is no way we want him there at the finish. I don't, I don't care what condition he's in. We don't want him hanging around at the finish. Yeah, we I th we I think need to get rid of him now. I think even, uh, I think what we've seen with some of the best sprinters in the world and that group, as you've described, was a sensational front group. I mean, we call it the Sprinters Classic. Stefan Kung was the, was the rider I missed out, actually. Yeah, he's the only kind of rogue rider who had to try and go clear and he ended up opening up the sprint. He, t he attacked once on the run and so did Van Hudonk. He did a little bit of what I like to call a stealth manoeuvre when Wout Van Aert just let his wheel go just to test the others. But... Okay, it wasn't, I mean, the race was split up over many, many minutes. So several, well, eight, eight, nine groups all over the road. Um, so not a classic sprinter's finish, but a group with some of the best sprinters in the world there. Um, and many of whom were really, really fatigued because it had been attritional since 50Ks. So they're coming into the final. Normally those guys are kind of used to being delivered in an armchair for a bunch sprint. Completely different uh, set of circumstances, but Van Hoedonk to pick up back on, on, on young Van Hoedonk did really, really well. Made sure for the last few Ks there weren't going to be any attacks. And, and Van Aert just, you know, was so strong in that sprint, wasn't he? We didn't see many attacks. It's people going the out the back. It was, it, was, it was so strong that, you, that it, was, it was too strong to see anyone attacking off the front almost. Yeah. I spoke to Adam about that and it was almost like a sort of world championships kind of ride. I mean, as you see, you're really right because a lot of the classics are a combination of the field whittling down but also attacks off the front, splintering and reforming. But this one was just one group that just got smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, 
basically, uh, which was quite unusual. So, yeah, we didn't see a lot of attacks, but it's super attritional. The riders going backwards. I mean, um, over the, that really concentrated, all those bergs, you know, you got 11 climbs within 63 kilometers, uh, the last of which, of course, was the camel with, you know, 65, uh, 35 k's to go. But um, I, I still think it was a really, really good race, but in a quite an unusual way. As I say, I, I ended up feeling a little bit sorry for Sam Bennett at the end there, but it, that can happen to you if you go that deep. Uh, Brad, you, you, when we were chatting earlier, it, yeah. you said it, it's never happened to you, but it's, it's a, is it a reasonably common thing for, for bike riders when, I mean, they, lo- when they've gone to put yeah. in a serious effort yeah. like that? Um, you know, and it only takes sort of a gel at the wrong time or, I mean, it can happen, yeah. I mean, it's, even though it didn't happen to me, um, it didn't, it's not to say that I wasn't capable of having that. Um, you know, lots of riders, it happens a lot on the track. Um, you know, extreme efforts and things like that. But, you know, and if you are capable of going that deep, you know, you can end up being sick. I mean, I think the only time I ever sort of really probably was at um, Verbier in the Tour de France in 2009 because I went that deep. Um, but that was at altitude. Um, I mean, it's, have you ever had it, Matt? I've, I've had it when I've been doing, I've never had it in a race where I've been thrown up um, uh, through physical effort, but I've had it when I've been doing very hard intervals like on the stat, on the home trainer. That's, that's kind of quite common. And yeah. track riders yeah. doing maximal kind of either a sprint effort or an effort that puts you well into oxygen debt and something there's a physical i can't remember there's a physiological reaction to do with your spleen which causes you to like throw up basically um and there's a a few right and it does take a lot to push yourself to that point because you're basically pushing yourself beyond what your body is really capable of and that's the difference between you know success and failure quite often um but it's very rare we see we see it happen that's if it was that because it we we need to kind of caveat this with the fact this was a few k's after the effort that he had to make so mm. we're not too sure yet but um but i think we're all in agreement that he absolutely rode himself into the ground and completely he couldn't do any more could he Chapeau he was alone today, and, that, and that's it yeah two two riders that we might have expected to see up there given their form this year who had to miss today's race entirely mads pedersen and milan sanremo winner jasper stoyven uh missed getting well again um, yeah. having tested positive for COVID-19. Bloody hell. So um, it's still about, still lurking, isn't it? St- yeah, so, so just a little warning yeah. there that... The threat know, is real. I get the feeling that it's not the last time that we will likely see that this season. No, and is it, is it, yeah, I mean, it just shows you, doesn't it? We sort of sat here thinking it's sort of just past us. You know, it's over a year ago, wasn't it, when we sat here, when it first started, wasn't it? We've got, we're in an unusual situation where in, in, we're sat here in Chiswick in, in the UK where things are actually looking relatively hopeful, but in mainland Europe, it's, the, the France is in lockdown. Paris Bay at the time of recording this is still under threat. Is it under um, still, yeah. And also, well, it's, been, it's been postponed, isn't it, Paris Bay, until October. Oh, we're, is we're that, looking at now. right. Is that literally, ha- that must have happened today then, because it, apparently it, they still haven't decided yet. Ah, ASO so the, have not made a call on it yet, yeah. As I understood it, the, the, yeah, the chat in the week was right. we're most slightly looking. So at it just shows, doesn't it? We, um, you know, we almost start taking it for well, granted. Well, Bora didn't start either. So Bora had an, an incident um, last last night. I mean, Ralph Denk went on record to say he wasn't very happy with the decision that was made by one of the doctors. He said it was an arbitrary decision, but an, uh, a member because Matt Walls, young Matt Walls, a sprinter, mm. Neopro, contracted coronavirus about a week ago, um, and because of some of the team members that were at. Um, again, Wilbergham had been near him or something like that. They decided the team can't race. And that means they can't actually ride Duardo's Vlaanderen in the week as mm. well, which is the last cobbled race before yeah. Flanders. So Bora, another team. Um, but, but I do agree. I think um, I'm glad that we, we can still race. But I think, you know, um, there's still going to be instances of, of teams not being able to start. I don't think this is the last, to be perfectly honest with you, sadly. Better news for Bora um, over at the Tour of Catalonia, um, particularly from stage six this past week. 
Peter Sagan yeah. and his first bunch sprint win uh, since the 2019 tour. Yeah, um, but he looked good in San Remo, didn't he? You know, had it been a sort of 10, 15 metres further, the line. We were pleasantly he, he surprised to see up. him up there. Yeah, um, and it just shows we can't underestimate him. Um, is he, you know, is he a threat now for Flanders? I reckon he is, mate. Do you know, um, I mean... Like you, I mean, I think people are kind of it's almost have the stars kind of aligned. I mean, quite often when riders get it, sick or ill, people say oh, it happens for a reason. I'm not saying him getting COVID-19 happened for a reason, but what it's actually done is delayed his start to the season. He, he rode, got round Terreno, got a kick in in Terreno, great week in his legs. Normally he'd ridden these cobble classics, but because he was in isolation at altitude, couldn't ride as much, he opted to ride Catalonia, got some good miles in, and as, as Brad said, that little glimpse of form, because he was invisible in, in Milan San Remo, gets fourth, wins that sprint in Catalonia. I think he could be very, very dangerous indeed. So it's an unorthodox route to Flanders. But at the moment, for Peter Sagan, it's looking pretty good. And I think you'll see him when Lekeep and, and Het, Het Newsblad give, give him the kind of stars for Flanders. I think he'll be up there four with stars. maybe maybe three, maybe four. Because... Um, yeah, it's, I, but it's also good to see because he's such an important rider in our sport. Yeah, yeah. And to see him get that win, I watched it unfold uh, yesterday and I was really chuffed for him. I was yeah. really, really chuffed because he's, uh, he's not just a great rider. I think he's an important rider as well. Can that put a bit of fire in your belly, Brad, when you're taking a kicking like we saw Sagan take in uh, Trenny? Yeah, um, I think for someone like him, you know, I think he's, we got became so accustomed to, over the last few years to, to, that he was sort of invincible, if you like, and was capable of doing anything. But... Um, I think last year, um, not being himself at the tour, although he showed glimpses of it, um, we put it down to you know being a, sort of a strange year with the tour being late and and Peter's the kind of rider who probably needs a lot of racing to get to where he is. Um, but then he did the Giro, and by the well that stage of the Giro where he won um, was was certainly the old Peter Sagan. It was magnificent, wasn't it? And it was he's great. carried on that, you know, and um, you know. You're only as good as your last racing cycle, is a famous saying. And um, obviously at Tirreno, we sort of, you know, wondered whether he'd be back into, you know, to form enough for the classics. But we did talk about, you know, we talked about the kit last week. Mm. And I was saying he, he, part of his obscurity as well now is because he's not, he doesn't stand out because he, he became so synonymous with wearing the, the world champs kit over three years. Um, and you stick out like a sore thumb. Or the you? Slovakian champions kit. It's one of the two, well, isn't he, it? He's generally. Generally. Yeah. 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 Um, Whereas now he just sort of blends into the rest of the peloton. And, and I think that's helped him a little bit as well. Um, and kind of that he's lost that invincibility a little bit, maybe in people's eyes. Um, it's not that he's got a point to prove. It's that um, he's kept plugging away, you know. And he's, I think he's had quite a few problems in his personal life and that which obviously, you know, will affect anybody and... Um, I think he's got some stability now and some structure back in his life and he's getting back to cycling being his priority now. Yeah. We saw Thomas de Ghent take a breakaway win at the Volta Catalunya today elsewhere in the race. Um, Ineos, I mean, Brad, you called this last week. Yeah. They went in, they meant business. They sent, I mean, arguably the strongest team they possibly could. They've ended up on GC with the with the one, two, three. Adam Yates clinching the biggest race win, stage race win of his career. Richie Port second, and G Garrett Thomas yeah. in third. Um, domination, the perfect week. Yeah, for them, I mean they 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 made a statement with the team they selected. Um, you know, I said that G needed a performance probably for himself, and um, but not a winning performance, but a performance where he shows the type of teammate he could be, um, the super domestic, and he showed that. Um, you know, it wasn't 
it wasn't about winning for Jeep, it was about the Tour de France. And that shows that you know, we saw him at Torino, ducking and diving, but they'd obviously been at altitude before Torino, and that always has an effect, you know, in that first race. But, but he he looked every bit the G, even without winning, that he did a few years ago, winning that tour. And I think he's a real threat this year. Adam has now, it's fair to say, come of age within that team. That's that's the last. It feel, feels like with Adam that, you know, he was always a man who was um, seconds, thirds, fourths, fifth. He's always very, very consistent. Um, but he's now kind of come of age, if you like, like his brother did a few years ago. Um, and, and that probably the icing on the cake was going to Ineos, really. That's given him that extra... It's done something, isn't it, for, for Adam Yates? I mean, he's, he's clearly It's the perfect in, team for him, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's settled in really, really well. And, and I think when you look at the objectives of the squad, um, the ability for like guys like Thomas to kind of ride a, a good race out or near the head of affairs, but n not worry about necessarily winning, but w have a really good hard workout and in the process of helping your teammates to win, end up with a podium. For, for, for the morale of the team, for the morale of, of G, um, it's going to be wonderful. And then for Adam as well, because Adam isn't going to be, as far as I understand, is focusing on the, on the Vuelta later in the year, isn't he, as well? So, so he's now, he can now turn on to kind of looking to ride for everybody else. He's got that big win, that big World Tour one-week stage race, as you said, the biggest week-long stage race of his career, without that, a shadow of a doubt. That team really suits certain riders. I mean, aside from Richie's Tour de France last year, um, he looks like every bit the rider now who's going to be such a big you know, asset to that team come July. Can we say he stepped out of his brother's shadow, Adam Yates? Yeah, and he probably had to leave the team to do that. Mm. I know that they work very well together. It's not a competition between them. But I just think that that system will suit Adam down to the ground way more than, than bike exchange. And that's not to say that that team didn't suit him, but it's sometimes a change is good. Um, and you go to Ineos and with, you, with the, the strength of riders around him, I mean, the objective was clear this week, it was to win the race and an incredible performance, really. We were talking about him in terms of, of okay, he can now do a job for, for the other riders around him. Um, has he not put himself in the frame for a, a leadership role? I mean, we, we, we're assuming we're assuming at this point he's going to do the Vuelta as their leader. But could, could his performances thus far this season, so strong in the UAE, only only outgunned by Pogacar, um, taking on and, and, and sort of leaving Sepkus Alejandro Valverde um, in his wake this week, winning stage three, proper statement stuff from Adam Yates. Yeah. Can we talk about him in terms of, of, of leading Ineos at the Tour now? Not this year. Because I think it, it will, unless there's something extreme happens to Grind, that performance from Grind is um, cemented more than anything. His leadership for the tour, because he was, you know, in some terms of sort of sharing out the the, the spoils, he's done that for Adam, and and um, you know, everything's on track. Mm. Um, Adam, I always said even last year when we announced the signing of him, that is, um, this ain't about him coming in and, and taking leadership. It's clear this year. Bernal for the Giro, as we understand, G for the Tour. Um, and then Adam is the next one on the, the list after that. No, the departure of Froome. Geraint, you'd, you'd think maybe coming towards the end of his career, but again, never underestimate him. Um, Adam is the next one now, the next British star that they will look to win the tour in the next two, three, four years. Mm. But And these these are like the early stages, if you like. There's not the sense that, okay, Teo's had a, he's, he's had a bang. His season hasn't started um, quite as well as we hope he, he, he might have done. Um, do, we, do we sub out? Adam Yates for Teo at the tour. I, I personally, I think, I think Teo can go to the tour, assuming he he gets, you know, he corrects this injury and gets some racing in his legs because the poor lad's only had three days racing so far this year mm. up to now, isn't he? Um, which is a, a big shame. Um, so we don't know what's going on behind the scenes in in sort in kind of terms of reconfiguring Teo's season. Um, 
But for Teo to go to the tour, had he had a normal kind of run into it, would, it's just an important part of his career. Having won the Giro, the next step is to go to the tour without any pressure because you've got, you've got two leaders for the tour. You've got Carapaz and, and, and Geraint. And then you've got Bernal, as Brad just said, for the Giro d'Italia and then Adam. So kind of Teo's got this kind of role. Okay, it's just almost like, it's kind of a very old fashioned term, but I think Teo needs, needs to be blooded. As, as it were, in, in the Tour de France. That's really important. But because of the smaller teams now, and if Teo's not quite right, Ineos will, will pull him out. They'll pull him from the Tour and, yeah, and, and put him, and maybe they won't, might not, he might not even be ready for the Giro. It could be I think a he's bottom situation of that list, yeah. and Adam comes back in for the Tour. Who knows? I think he's bottom of that list of leaders, even though he's won a Grand Tour. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I so think Teo probably accepts that. You know, yeah. he'd be the first to accept that out of his modesty. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's the tour of the Basque Country next for Teo, um, Matt, you've just mentioned Carapaz, and Adam Yates. Um, they'll face off against Pogacar, Roglic, uh, a real sort of all-star cast again. Mm. Hugh Carthy. Hugh Carthy quietly went well this week, yeah. actually. Top yeah. 70. Yeah. In Catalonia. I mean, Chavez, en Enrique Mas, uh, not quite where he hoped, uh, or he, he might hope he would be at this point. Um, Jacob Fulsang, uh, Valverde, um, Molima. Michael Woods. I mean, they'll all be there while Thomas is off to do a training camp in Tenerife. Yeah. So, I mean, Brad, talk, talk, talk us through that rather than now, you know, building again and going to another race. Thomas is taking, he's almost taking a step back, G. Well, and, and because he's shown camp. where he's at and there's a long time to the tour um, and he accumulates that type of form to be able to race like that off the back of, um, obviously, his altitude camp before Tirreno, then Tirreno racing hard let it soak up the work they're doing because they do a lot of work up in uh, altitude. Um, the altitude itself gives you kind of another few percent. Um, and it, it's just, it's, it's um, as I said, we were talking about the other week, we were talking about um, kind of the way Van Aert, Van Der Poel and that were racing in Tirreno um, and that G and that were probably lacking a little bit because their training is much more based around becoming very efficient at threshold all day and efficient at kind of burning fuel and that which is much more um, conducive to the Grand Tours where you're racing over three weeks and it's a war of attrition and that's what they're building to um, whereas Van der Poel and those guys you know Van der Poel's coming off of a, a sort of world cyclocross world title um, and they're kind of really kind of you know big numbers hitting ups and downs lefts and rights and but Van der Poel's you know is a classics man and that's what his goals are whereas G you know, he's, he's, he's very clear with G's the Tour de France again, a second tour under his belt. And you can't chase everything. And as I say, there is risks with racing, the crashes. We saw um, Primoz at Paris-Nice. Um, we saw, of course, Teo's uh, misfortune this year. And it's just, it's just safe. You know, the, I think had he, he was lacking racing last year coming to the Tour G, wasn't he? Um, and, and form. And I think um, he's, he's, he's where he wants to be. Um, so why push it? And why risk just go back, train in a, in a, in a you know kind of a, a secure environment where he doesn't have the distractions of home life with children, etc. Um, it's just you concentrate on one thing up there. It's just you know eat, sleep, and train, and you know make the most of the um, altitude training, and then come back and and you know put that into practice in the next race. But as um, um, Primoz and those guys, he's recovered from a crash. 
and this is his next thing. Now, Basque country is cold. It tends to rain a lot. Can be can be very, very um, cold up in Yeah, the, but I think G's where he wants to be. And let's not forget, this is about the bigger picture for G. It's 22 mm. days racing he's had. has just totted it up so far. And when you compare that to Teo's three, so there's a lot of good miles in the bank, especially when you factor in, you know, Catalonia is a brutally hard race. Terreno is incredibly hard. So it's not just the accumulated days. It's the, the density of the, of the intensity basically mm. so so yeah. brad right he just needs to take this where it needs to be yeah and now and, it, and he's he, come he out can, of it yeah. uninjured safe yeah. it's like okay let's get in this kind of vacuum of keeping that just simmering yeah and you just, you you just keep up topping again. the glass up um and not burning that in the mental energy as well of going race to race because g's a racer and when g wants to turn himself he's a bit like sam bennett he can he can go deep g um you know we saw him at the giro last year crash things like that and it's just it's about um you know kind of it's, it's going back to that armstrong kind of who started that, you know, racing little and that, that, that mindset, which we adopted in 2012, which was, you know, um, train hard, race easy, you know, and, um, we tended to train harder numbers wise. You can control the numbers and your workloads and things like that. Um, and back off. Whereas race days, you know, you have to get up the next morning and race. Um, and you can, you can probably overdo it a bit racing too much worse. So you compare this to last year where G, we saw him at the Dauphiné, was lacking form and he was chasing form and they eventually pulled him and put him in the Giro. Um, he's now in you know, March with July looming. He can now tweak and manipulate the training program to stay and gain a few more percent. He's almost there. You know, he's would say he's be better shape now than he was going to the Tour He looked, good. He looked good, didn't he? he? He really did look good. He looked, actually never really looked super, super stretched, did he? I mean, looked, looked like the Ineos train of old. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's funny that they've come in for some heavy fire, haven't they? Oh, it's just the sky of old. It's like, well, hold on a minute. Let's just go back a few. Let's I think it'll back. be the dominant at all. Let, let's, yeah, well, also, let's have a little look at how Adam actually won that, that first stage and got himself in the jersey. He attacked 5K out. You know, it was a real kind of, he didn't, he, off the, okay, it was off the back of a bit of a train, but he attacked and then dropped several riders in the process. Except, so except so the move Valverde, to win yeah. the race, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, the move to win the race, you're not then going to race aggressively to kind of defend it. You've got three riders up there. You know, what more do you do? You have to lead the race. Any team in that position would have had to ridden the same way. And I, I'm kind of not necessarily defending the team. I just, I just think it's important that people understand how races kind of pan out. You, you, you race aggressively, Erzy, you seize control. You know, and, uh, and, and, and stage racing is very different than, than one-day racing, you know. And uh, I think they've actually raced quite a great... I think it's been a different sort of team. But once they get into a jersey, it will be doing what they do best. Let's be, let's be honest. Brad, just to tie off Catalonia, Chris Froome, we saw yeah. him losing almost on the first climb, the first uh, sort of serious time the race went uphill. We saw him lose eight and a half minutes on stage one. Still working his way back. Yeah, um... I just is it is it going to be enough for the tour? You know, have, have we seen enough? Of, I thought the Volta last year was a real good sort of um, step up the ladder in terms of getting back to to the old Chris Froome. Um, I thought he might have been a little bit further ahead um, of where he's at. Uh, you know, certainly a top ten performance around that Hugh Carthy sort of region. Um, I wouldn't say a fear for him, but probably with every week that goes by and every race that goes by it's becoming less likely that we're going to see a Chris Froome at this year's Tour de France that's capable of winning in the, in the old manner. Um, and it must be a strange feeling for him as well, being on the at the receiving end of, of a, perhaps an even stronger unit of Ineos than mm. when he was there. Yeah, I, I think you could argue, yeah, it's a, they are looking remarkably strong at the moment, um, Ineos. And, and I, think, I think, again, Chris Froome, 
has come in for a lot, you know, quite a lot of vitriol, quite a lot of flack. I mean, it's just like step back from this a minute. 2019, the yeah, guy that, nearly died. Yeah, that, that I can't I mean, understand. And it really, yeah. and you know, I think whatever your kind of views on Chris Froome, there was an athlete doing what he does for a living, hit a wall at 60k an hour, broke multiple bones in his body, and is now back riding at professional level. Um, I just think it's going to take time, but you know, he is one of the most highest paid riders in the world, and at some point. Let's be honest, business is business. Israel Startup Nation are going to want to see a little bit of return on the Chris Room investment. So there's a bit of pressure there, but still, but, but he you know, he needs, he, yeah, but he just, I, th I just think he needs more time. But to answer that question, I think it's going to be tough for him to be competitive at the Tour de France. I, I really, really do. But what I do think he warrants a bit more respect from, from yeah, the, from uh, the uh, yeah, it, it, it um, does. You know, let's just give him a break. You know, he's, um, like you say, he's come back from something. Um, it, you know, if anything, it's, 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 we should celebrate. It's good to see him in the peloton. I agree. He is. Is there a sense that he's already provided ISN with the return on their investment, given the amount that we talk about him still and the amount that we talk well, yeah, about because he's a startup nation? He's warranted that because of his Palmares. Yeah. And, and I think that's why he's paid. You know, I don't think he should um, feel bad that he's paid that much and not performing at the level of... He is Chris Froome at the end of the day. And again, he's another one you can never underestimate, you know. He could turn that round on a day. Yeah, and and I think also as well that the when he signed his contract was post that crash. I mean, when they signed him, they knew they were they were signing Chris Froome, the, the chap that's won four Tour de France's, two Walters and a, and a and a Giro. Um, that's in the bank. You've now got, but there was nothing guaranteed about the future. You know, it's not as if they signed him and then he had a crash. Ah, like, oh, no, they signed him off the back of that injury. So there's always going to be a little bit of a gamble there. But but they've got you know, one of the most, you know, um, talented riders of his generation um, within the team that can give the, you know, that can help the team as well in terms of just looking after the younger riders. You've got that wealth of experience for three years on board and that's worth its kind of weight in gold as well. And but, you're, we're always going to notice when someone like him loses eight minutes. You know, we don't talk about the other people that are around him that also lost eight minutes. You know, it's, um, I mean, you know, we, we very rarely talk about Roman Bardet. I know he's not on the same level as Chris Froome, but he's changed teams. He's looking to bounce back into a podium place in the tour. Um, I mean, he, we haven't, where's he been this year? You know, um, where's his I'll put, I'll return? Put Pino his, in that for, same boat as for well. For his investment at that team, you know. Brad, Matt, a couple of other races to cover off this week. The E3 Saxo Bank Classic. Uh, the only race, as far as I'm aware, named after a motorway. Uh, we saw Kasper Asgrin um, take the the victory on the line, having broken off the front of the breakaway, be caught by the breakaway, and then break again. Um, De Kerning quick step with one and two on the podium in the end. Florian Senechal coming coming in second. Matthew van der Poel um, to round out the top three, uh, which leads me to the wider question: How do you beat Matthew van der Poel? Um, and Wout van Aert, for that matter. Brad, this would appear to be how. You do it with numbers. playing the numbers, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the one thing they probably lack. Um, Yumbo in certain races um, around you know, van Aert. Um, and van der Poel certainly lacks um, numbers around him. But um, And that, you know, he's, he's built the reputation as someone who is, a, is capable of doing it on his own, which we've seen the last year or two. Um, but it, it will go against him at times. Um, obviously, he's highly paid by Canyon. He's a big asset to them, isn't he? And the cross is obviously a big part of that. It's the manufacturers, you know, it's you tend to... Riders tend to become just synonymous with a, with a bike manufacturer now and tend to go where? Because they're highly paid. You know, the, 
a lot of the teams are funded by bike manufacturers because of a certain rider, and Van der Poel is one of them. And uh, at what point will he change teams? Because that might be something that um, they will pay more and more to stay with whichever team they're with. And will that jeopardise, uh, you know, hinder his career, do you think, Matt, in terms of winning races? I mean, you put him in a decoded quick step where he wouldn't probably be as highly paid as he is there. Um, he wouldn't have the brand building that Canyon are doing behind him. But he would probably win more races, wouldn't he? It's, it's an, I think the... I mean, we kind of morphed into a different conversation, but I think it's a very, very interesting one, the, the Matthew van der Poel one. And it's just... I mean, even his father, Adri van der Poel, um, himself an iconic, legendary, talented bike rider, is left scratching his head at the way Matthew conducts himself in races tactically. And, and when I mean that, I mean, it's... it's for the for the commentators, for the fans of the sport, it's, spectac that what we love? it's spectacular. Oh no, that's what I'm just getting yeah. into that. I, I love it. But in terms of actually racing to a plan, I don't think at the moment, or maybe next year, Van der Poel would fit in a team like Ineos or like or like Jumbo Visma, or because he is a showman. I mean, and, and and the sport is all the better for it. But if he wants to start to gather monuments and put them on his on his shelf in a few years' time, and a world championships. All the, he wants to win it. Like he, he's one of a handful of riders, including Van Aert, that could win every monument, um, including Lombardy in races like that, Liege-Bastogne-Liege, because he, he can climb as well as sprint. Um, and I think because of the way... He, he rides beautifully. He rides from almost like a different era, but it's slightly incompatible with racing in the modern era when you've got numbers. And, and um, it's great at the moment, but if he wants to yeah, get that trophy cabinet full he might have to go to a team that's slightly more conservative, slightly more tactically shrewd and deconic, but he'd have to do it their way, not his way. Do you, think you know, he... you don't want to stifle a rider too much because it's, you know, rider has to be able to kind of function, make decisions out on the road. But when they're ones that are like, oh my God, what was all that about? Um, he, he doesn't fit in any other team apart from Alps and Phoenix, which are basically built around him at the moment, aren't yeah. they? I wouldn't say, do you think, not, not, do you think he did too much? Do you think he showed too much in Torino? Which has gone against. Do you mean him. in terms of in Torino Adriatico? Do you mean the way he, the way he showed there? Not in terms of physically doing too much, but do you think he showed too much to his rivals? I think he's one of the most feared riders out there at the moment. I mean, in, well, I actually think that performance probably went against him. It because that's what we spoke about, wasn't it? Who could beat him? To me, this week the Koenig have shown. So we, we asked the question: How do you beat that double act of, of Van Aert and Van der Poel? De Koenig have shown to me that so far this season, certainly, and 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 probably most of last season, they're too tempted too often to put all of their eggs in the Alaphilippe basket. Whereas it doesn't just come down to Alaphilippe, Van Aert and Van der Poel. Actually, you can take them out of the equation entirely if you just play the numbers. And then, so, so this week uh, at E3 Harrelbecker, they've ended up with, with a one and two because they didn't just rely... Well, I mean, I Alaphilippe it, wasn't in the race, but they didn't yeah. just rely on that tactic of everything behind Alaphilippe. And then we, we see... Lulu face off against the other big two. I think two. there's certain races with a certain parkour that are going to suit Julien Alaphilippe more than a lot of teammates. But when it comes to the Cobble Classics, you know, and when you look at the, the lineup, go back to E3 for a minute, you look at their lineup, Stebar, Lampart, Tim de Klerk, the only domestique really, Ballerini, Seneschal, and Burt van Lerberger as well, then Asgreen. You've got, from their seven riders, five of those, if you saw with the winner, yeah. No other team comes anywhere near the depth of winning talent, but they're all equal. They're pretty much, there might be one rider who's kind of a little bit better, but they've got so many options. And most teams have maybe have one or two at best, maybe three. Some, some teams have two. Other teams don't really have anybody that is capable of winning. Why do they so often seem to only back Alaphilippe? I don't know if that's necessarily true. 
You know, I, I think in certain races they do. And and I think what he's what he's willing to do by his very nature, especially if we if we look back to the opening weekend when he was on the offensive quite a lot, I mean, him attacking up the road, he was doing essentially what Asgreen did, which is to take the pressure off. You know, it's like, this is a great entertainment and we can just sit back. So why not use Alaphilippe? I don't think they're necessarily riding for Alaphilippe because they went and won with Ballerini um, in opening weekend, didn't they, anyway? But he's the only rider, I think, in the whole of the Koenig Quickstep lineup that is a little bit of a kind of, you know, uh, is a little bit kind of loose and a little bit of flamboyant, rides on instinct a lot, maybe not quite as unruly, for want of a better word, as, as Mathieu van der Poel. But there'll be certain races, races like Liège, for example, and the flesh, he'll be pretty much the sole leader. But for all the other races, they've got five riders that can win them and no other team comes anywhere near because that's the way the team is permed. That's the way they sign riders that are capable of winning and everybody's given a chance. And they're the only team that's built like that. And that's why they are not unbeatable, but that's why they're a difficult proposition. Even when you've got the best rider pound for pound in the world, when you're up against five, you can't do it. No. <laughs> Elsewhere this week... Cav showing mm. showing some form at Copia Bartoli, uh, leading a stage race for the first time in four years. Uh, you'd imagine few will mean more to him, Brad, but uh, it's still crossing the line first, not necessarily just taking well, the, you know the GC it's, jersey. Um, it's a step in the right direction, doesn't it? Cav works as hard as anyone, um, and it's great for him. You know, it doesn't matter how you know whether it's considered small or you know comparable to what he has done in the past it's mark cavendish up there yet not first but shows he's on the way but to pull on a leader's jersey which i think is um is great for him really um and it's a darn sight better than watching him crying on the, the lineup game with him last year it's the um, first time i've seen him out of the saddle sprinting it's just good he looks happy again as well and he is happy and it's great the key, that's the key team. word there is happy and it, isn't it cav deserves to be happy in a team where he can now, you know, if we keep talking about, you know, his retirement and stuff, he can start thinking about that now. But, you know, whether he's winning or not, his presence, and just to see him up there and see him, and the fact we're talking about him in the leaders' jersey and not talking about him getting dropped or not finishing or, you know, has he got a team next year or seeing emotion in, in his face that we saw last year when he crossed the line again, weather game, is just, um, it's brilliant. Uh, yeah, I'd just echo what Brad's saying. You know, to see him in that jersey, um, was, was to a lot of us who know him quite well, was actually quite emotional. And to see him narrowly missing out on victory was good. You know, okay, he, he knows it's not quite the same standard as a World Tour race, but it's just wonderful. But it's his, you know, I take my little message afterwards and he messaged back a little voice memo and the joy in his voice was, was something quite powerful. And I think he's happy. He's been given this place at De Kerning, a place that he spent many years, some of his biggest, biggest successes in his pro career were there. And... And he's also, I think what he's clearly enjoying as well is passing on that experience to the younger riders. And I think he feels like the elder statesman now in the team. And a lot of his kind of social media stuff over the week of, of Settimane Internationale, the race he did was, was saying, great to be part of this young Wolfpack team, you know, leading, like, like um, they won the final stage, didn't they? And he was, I think he likes ha not having the pressure of being Mark Cavendish, but just being able to ride his bike and race and be part of a team. And once... I think a lot of the pressure has now gone away because he's got what he wanted, an another year um, racing with, you know, racing at this kind of level and he's having fun and um, definitely not seeing the last of him but I think we'll all agree that, uh, especially Brad's point, he's happy, he's smiling, he's in a good place and whatever happens in the future, I think his path to that end point is, is a kind of good one. He's on the right kind of path that he needs to be now. At the other end of the, well, at the other end of the age spectrum, Ethan Hayter um, for Ineos. Mm -hmm. 
he took the win uh, a copy of Barcelli on stage three. Incredibly consistent week for him, Brad. Yeah. Uh, fifth, 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 first, fourth, fourth. Yeah. I That's mean, um, superb. I mean, it's um, yeah, another young talent. You know, we spoke about a few over sort of Colonel Brussels, Kerner, and, you know, the, the amount of Brits we've, I mean, we've spoke about this year already. Quite a contrast to what we talked about earlier, about 20 years ago when we sort of in those races. But, um, in other circumstances, or 10 years ago, 15 years, he would have been one of our best riders in talking about those kind of results. But it's sort of a an after-mention, afterthought, you know, with everything else we had to get through with Adam Yates and G and the like. So, um, again, another one for the future, isn't it? Fantastic um, kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of educational sort of you know, process he's going through in, in, a, in a squad that's, you know, that, was it probably their C squad they put out for that race, wasn't it? And um, it's um, it's just brilliant the wealth of talent we've got in this country now. We're one of the leading nations now in terms of um, cycling. And I think that 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 persistence. I can't believe he didn't win the points classification. He's only second yes. in the points. That's a bit unfair, isn't it? But he, I mean, looking back through the to the start of the year as well. I mean, up there um, in the TT uh, individual time trial in the Tour de Bessar, third there as well against some really good opposition. So he can do it all. He's a great track rider. Um, he's got a lot of potential and the fact that he can do those sorts of rides he can climb reasonably well as well he can sprint he can climb he can time trial you know he's, the future's bright for that lad but they've got so much as we said there's a lot of young um, under 23 talent at world tour level now that, that we've almost got this kind of wealth of riches but definitely one to watch out for that was a superb week by him yeah looking ahead then towards Tour of Flanders uh, midweek as Matt mentioned Tour of Flanders to look forward to Brad will be back for that next weekend predictions time i would now start thinking about alaphilippe outsiders yeah of course we aside from van der poel van art i would like to think someone like sagan definitely because put him in the picture now and um a, a long shot of um trenton yeah mm. um, I've, I've just got the start sheet up here just having a little bit of a scroll through but i've got a funny feeling about peter sagan you know he's just getting stronger and stronger and when you look at the the big three that 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 you know, the spotlight shone on them. You kind of, I also wonder how long. I mean, clearly, Wout van Aert's in great form, Matthew van der Poel is in form, but it's like, how long can they keep that in that, that burning so brightly? You know, when there's other riders a bit more experienced, a bit calmer, maybe coming up, it's going to make for a mouth watering race. The Ronda is one of the most exciting one day races in the world, isn't it? I can't wait, but yeah, I'm going to go for I'm going to, I've got a cheeky, sneaky feeling about Peter, Pete, Mr. Sagan, yeah, to a double up to be win number two, wouldn't it, if he were to pull off the victory. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Brad, thank you. Thank you. As ever. Um, and Matt, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, where can we follow you on social media? Uh, at Real Stevens, because all the other Stevens were taken. Brad, as ever. So we go. So we go. You can also follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you also to our producer, Pete Burton podcast pete finally from me graham wilgos it's goodbye if you've enjoyed the show please do subscribe share your thoughts and rate us brad as we said plenty of action to look forward to coming up on eurosport and gcn plus this week yeah good the big one flanders um in the meantime have a good week yeah we'll see you then everyone matt thanks again cheers guys thank you
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 